This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 27. It can be found naturally on page 1, being the start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 27, from verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. Let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here endeth the reading. Thanks be to God. The second reading today comes from John chapter 1, verse 1. It can be found on page 862 of the Pew Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The lightness shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of, as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Hear the word of the Lord. Our preacher today is Matt Patterson, who uh, is the, the pastor at one of our mission partner churches, which is Living Water Community Church in Redfern. We've been partnering with Living Water for about six years now, and it's been, I think that's right, isn't it, Matt? Just, just nod, yes, thank you. Um, it's been a really enriching partnership for us, and so I'm really delighted to have Matt preaching with us and speaking with us uh, this week. So welcome, Matt. It's great to be with you, uh, with you this morning. I was actually meant to be here a few months ago but, um, to speak to you, but I was quite sick with pneumonia. So it's great to finally be here. And uh, thank you for praying for me, for those of you who are praying for my recovery. I think I've made a full recovery, which is um, yeah, all praise to God. So thank you for that. And it's great to be here with you. Today, I want us to think about a question. And that is that what do we mean as Christian people when we say that we as human beings are made in God's image. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And to find out, we need to go back to the very start of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Because the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, the first few chapters of the Bible, are like the concrete foundations of a large building or a unit block. And in New South Wales, haven't we seen the value of good foundations in unit blocks of late? 
Um, if you don't have good foundations, then anything built on top of it will crack and crumble, won't it? And the same is true of the Bible. So the opening chapters of Genesis lay the foundations for much of what we know to be true about God, but it also lays the foundations for much of what we know to be true about ourselves as people. Another way that we could think about the opening chapters of Genesis are that they're like seeds that are planted that grow throughout the rest of the scriptures. And in fact, there are many foundation stones or there are many seeds uh, that are planted in these early chapters of the Bible. But we're really only going to focus on this one today, which is about what it means to be made in God's image. And in these early chapters, we come to learn that God created by speaking, which is pretty powerful, isn't it? To be able to create things, to be able to create matter just by speaking um, shows how powerful God is. He didn't create out of a struggle. You know, there's other creation stories in the world where God or gods fought and they created or they, there was a struggle. We don't read that in the Bible, do we? But his act of creating, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but his act of creating is actually very peaceful, isn't it? God simply spoke. He spoke peacefully and his word was powerful enough to create matter from nothing, which is a lot of power. And so God made light, he ordered the light in darkness, he made sky, he made the earth and seas, vegetation, the sun, the moon, and then he made the animals. And then we come to verse 26 of chapter 1, which is really the pinnacle of creation. It's the pinnacle of everything that God has made in uh, chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth. So this is the pinnacle of creation. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And God said that they should rule over everything else on the earth. And then it's repeated actually in verse 27, isn't it? In verse 27, we read there, So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, this is repeated twice, isn't it, that God created man in his image, in the image of God. Now, most of us will know that even though God created the world to be good, pretty soon things became pretty messed up, didn't they? Things became pretty ugly. And we call this the fall and this happens in Genesis chapter 3, which is where Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and they ate from the one tree that they weren't meant to eat, which was the tree in the middle of the garden known as the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But does the fall mean that people aren't created in God's image after the fall? Well, no, because the, the fall happens in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 5, afterwards, we see this idea affirmed again that all people are made in God's image. So if you look with me, you can turn to uh, page 4 of the Bible, the Pew Bible's there. In the opening of chapter 5, it says, This is the list of the, de the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. So before and after the fall, we can see that all people are made in the image of God. But you might have noticed that I haven't yet spoken or, I guess, defined what it really means to be made in God's image. What does it mean? It's an interesting question and one that a lot of people have put a lot of time and thought and writing into over the years. And people have wondered, 
questions such as, does it mean that we look like God? Does that what it means to be made, does that what it mean, is that what it means to be made in the image of God, that we look like God? Or does it mean that we're just as powerful as God's, as God is? Does it mean that we have a similar personality to God? Does it mean that we have similar thoughts to God? But I think we need to be careful here and take the warning of Isaiah 55, which is that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And what I think the Bible is actually teaching us here is that all human life, without exception, is uniquely valuable to God. That's what I think it means to be made in God's image. It's not that God doesn't care for the plants or the animals. He does care. He still made them and he cares. But human life is set apart by God from the rest of creation. Being made in God's image means that all human life is uniquely special to God. Plants and animals, mountains and oceans, you know, they're beautiful. We can enjoy them as good things, but they weren't made in God's image. And so to the God of the Bible, human life is the most valuable and important life on earth because only people are made in God's likeness and image. And this is actually further reinforced in Genesis chapter 9. So we're flicking through a bit. If you want to follow, um, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We see here this direct link between being made in God's image and the value of human life. So Genesis 9, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a human life, by a human, uh, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made mankind. So we see there an explicit link, don't we? between the value of human life, the unique value of human life, and being made in God's image. So God is condemning the taking of another person's life. Why? Because they're made in God's image, and God cares for that life. But, you know, we live in interesting times, don't we, when it comes to this idea that we're made in God's image. Because to be blunt about it, I don't think people really care anymore. People seem to have moved on. People don't seem to care anymore that we're made in God's image or believe it. But at the same time, what makes this confusing is that people are more passionate than ever about our own rights. We're all fighting for our rights in one way or another, it seems, in our society. And for a lot of people, individual rights seem to be self-evident. People say we've got our rights and they just always existed. People say, it's just common sense that we've all got rights. But to me, I'm not sure about you, but to me at least, this seems out of touch with reality. Because throughout most of the world's history, most people have had very few rights. Most people have had few rights, especially the young, the sick, the vulnerable, the old, those with serious disabilities or injuries. History, if we're honest, has been absolutely brutal to the vulnerable in society. And so the question I think we need to ask about our own society is this. If you don't want to believe that we're made in God's image, then who or what gives your life value? Who or what gives any human life value? Is it you that gives your life value? Is it other people? Is it because of what you can do? Is it because of your skills in a certain area? Is it because of your job that gives your life value? Is it because of what you can do for society? Is it because you're healthy? And this exact issue of working out what it is that gives human life value has proven quite difficult for the new atheists. 
who obviously don't believe in God and therefore they don't believe that we're made in God's image as people. And so because of that, they've been grappling with these very issues of where does the value of human life come from? Christopher Hitchens uh, was a well-known and articulate atheist. I think most of us would have at least heard his name. And Hitchens was asked this back in 2010, a year before he died. He was asked, what reason do you have to ground fundamental human rights? And this was his reply. He said, when you say, what's my grounding? How do I know there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know there are such things. And he goes on to say, I have a, str a strong suspicion that Bentham, and when he says Bentham, he means the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham. He said, I have a strong suspicion that Bentham might have been right about that. In other words, he's saying, I have no grounds at all to say that there are any such thing as human rights as an atheist. And I respect Hitchens here for his honesty, at least. At least he can admit that as an atheist, he has no grounds to stand on to say that humans have any rights beyond anyone else or anything else. There is no foundation, is there? There's no seed that he can build his argument on. But there are other more troubling ideas that have been put forward by other atheists. And here we begin to see what happens when this idea is lost that we're made in God's image. We begin to see the devaluing of human life, especially those who are young or unwell or old or who are seen to offer less to society than other people. So back in 2006, for example, Richard Dawkins, uh, who's still alive and another famous atheist, he said this. He said, if you can breed cattle for milk yield, horses running for speed and dogs for herding skill, why on earth should it be impossible to breed humans for mathematical, musical or athletic ability? So what Dawkins is really arguing for is for some kind of selective breeding program within the human race, that the intelligent, the musical, the athletic should breed, whereas I assume he's saying the weak, the unintelligent, the sick should be bred out of the human gene pool. I'm not sure about you, but this sounds a lot like eugenics to me, which was something that um, Adolf Hitler tried to run with in Nazi Germany. And then in 2014, Dawkins had an exchange with a woman on Twitter. And this woman was wrestling with what to do. She was wrestling with the choice of what to do if she had uh, fallen pregnant with a child with Down syndrome. And Dawkins told the woman on Twitter that the abortion would be the only moral choice for her to make. And then, this is a, probably the more confronting part of this, but um, the Australian atheist uh, Peter Singer, uh, he believes that parents should be given the choice after the child is born as to whether the child should live if they are born with a disability. Um, and this is known as selective infanticide. And this is a direct quote from him. Um, and again, it's, it's pretty confronting. You know, I've got my own kids and this is, it's, I find this confronting to read. Um, so this is what Peter Singer says. He says, the birth of a child is usually a happy event for the parents. They have nowadays often planned for the child. The mother has carried it for nine months. From birth, a natural affection begins to bind the parents to it. So one important reason why it is normally a terrible thing to kill an infant is the effect the killing will have on its parents. But this is where things turn for him. So this is still quoting from him directly. It says, it is different when the infant is born with a serious disability. 
Birth abnormalities vary, of course. Some are trivial and have little, uh, sorry, some are trivial and have little effect on the child or its parents. But others turn the normally joyful event of birth into a threat to the happiness of the parents and any other children they may have. Parents may, with good reason, regret that a dis disabled child was ever born. This is his argument for saying that in some cases it's actually okay for parents to decide to kill a child after it's born if it impacts the happiness of the parents. And so my brothers and sisters, my friends, this is what happens. This is where things end up when human life is devalued. This is where we end up when we forget that all people value, are valuable to God. They are all made in his image without exception. And yet to put it more positively, when Christians have remembered this doctrine that all people are made in God's image and that all human life is valuable to God, then it has a profound ability to tra transform lives and to transform society. In Australia, back when there was a popularly, popularly held view, even in the scientific community, that Aboriginal people were the missing link in evolution between primates and people, it was the early Christian missionaries who said, no, these are people. The early Christian missionaries had this dual role. They were reaching Indigenous people with the gospel, and yet they were also trying to wake the church up and convince the church that these were real people made by God and valuable to him and needed to hear the gospel. A more well-known example is obviously William Wilberforce in the UK who argued for the abolition of slavery based on this same idea. And Eric Metaxas, who has written on Wilberforce, he said that um, Wilberforce and his allies declared that every human being was equal in God's sight, made in the image of God, and must therefore be treated with equal dignity. But you can go right back to the beginning of Christianity to see this being lived out by the early Christians. You see, during, during the early years of Christianity, after Jesus was killed, uh, and then resurrected and ascended, and Christianity was still going out into the world, during these early years, the world was a cruel, brutal place. The Greek and the Roman world was violent and callous, and the practice of killing newborn babies was widespread and actually legal throughout much of the Greek and Roman world. And Cicero, for example, who wrote just before Jesus was born, he said that deformed infants should be killed, and Seneca wrote about the same time, a bit after, he said, we drown children who are at birth weakly and abnormal. But we know that the early Christians knew that people were made in God's image and they valued all human life. And in fact, in the book of James, for example, we see that God's people are reminded not to curse other people. This is in James chapter 3, verse 9, if you want to read it um, in your own time. So there's a reminder in God's where that Christians shouldn't curse other people because they too are made in God's image and in his likeness. But of course it impacted more than just how Christians spoke to each other and to other people. It impacted how, how uh, Christians cared for the most vulnerable, especially the children that had been left on the um, Rome's rubbish tips to die. So that's how a lot of children um, were killed. They were just left on the tip to die and they would die from exposure over time. And yet the early Christians cared about this and they stepped into this and they did something about it. And um, I'll read out this quote that describes what they did and this is a quote by Michael Craven. 
their most distinguishing characteristic, that is the characteristic of the Christians, was not their ideology or their politics, but their love for others. They lived as though who were at once living under the rule and reign of God, a sign and foretaste of what it will be fully when Christ returns. This is the important part. They expressed their opposition to infanticide by rescuing abandoned children of Rome and raising them as their own. An enormously self-sacrificial act at a time when resources were limited and survival was in doubt. So you see what he's saying there? That these Christians rescued these children at enormous cost to themselves at a time when there was no social security, when resources were in doubt, when the next meal was in doubt and survival itself was in doubt. And the Christians still chose to do this enormously self-sacrificial act by raising other people's children who were, you know, often deformed and had, um, had difficulties. But this is a beautiful thing, isn't it? And it's challenging and it's encouraging all at the same time that it was the Christians who became known as the people who rescued the abandoned children of Rome. And other people noticed how these Christians were living. Why? Because the early Christians followed the example of Christ. Our Lord Jesus spent a lot of time, didn't he, with people who the world had kicked to the curb. Jesus spent a lot of time with people that the world had dehumanized or depersoned. Jesus was exceptionally caring, wasn't he? He was compassionate for people who the world had forgotten about. You think of the care that Jesus showed for people with long-term disabilities, with illnesses, long-term illnesses that could not be cured. He spent a lot of time, didn't he, with people that were trapped in sin. Jesus spent a lot of time with children even. You remember the disciples said to Jesus, children, go away. You're not welcome there, Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Let them come to me. You remember the example of the woman at the well in John 4? A deeply broken woman with many difficult relationships, many past marriages that had all failed, and Jesus loved her, didn't he? And showed her care, and that she was a person cared for by God. Jesus spent time with outcasts, loners, people that had been under constant spiritual attack. And yet it's true that our world has had a very difficult and confronting history of devaluing these sort of people, the sort of people that Jesus spent time with. And yet Jesus affirmed that these people were made in God's image, cared for by God, loved by God, and valuable to him. Jesus had time for these people, didn't he? And by doing, spending time with them, he affirmed that they were human, that they were people loved by God. And these early Christians, they imitated Christ, didn't they? They valued people who the uh, knew. Sorry, they valued people who they knew were important to Jesus. And so, may we, brothers and sisters, always remember that all people are made in God's image, that all human life is valuable to our Father in heaven, and may we be willing to live this out by self-sacrificially loving and caring for those whom the world has kicked to the curb, but are still loved by God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.